May be seated. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I want to share this morning from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a very, very powerful chapter. In it, um, Paul talks about the victory that is ours in Christ. He talks about our uh, adoption as children of God, that God sends his, the, the Spirit into our hearts saying, Abba, Father, God bearing witness, we are His children. We bear witness, He is our Father. And so God brings us into that kind of a relationship. Um, does it mean everything goes well? No, it doesn't. Um, there are hardships, there is strife, pain and suffering, but it does not alter the fact of our relationship with God. So I want to start reading from chapter 8, verse 31. And he's talking about our calling in God. What then shall we say to these things? And here's the question I want us to concentrate on this morning. We're going to come back to it again. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, he's already told us that he gave his son to die for us. He's already told us that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes on our behalf uh, according to the will of God. He's told us these things, and then he's asking you and I the question, and it's a question we have to answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the only question remains is, is God for us? And in Christ, the answer is yes. If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, but there are those who are against us, aren't they? Um, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, God comes to us. Um, he tells us if he's with us, then the question comes, who can stand against us? And the answer, as we're going to see, is going to be no one. In verse 32, though, he says, He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Uh, when Jesus died on the cross, he says, It is finished. And he bowed up his head and gave up his spirit. 
God is the one who is receiving that sacrifice and offering from his son. He did not spare his own son, gave him up for us. And so with him, he's going to give us all things. Um, He's not necessarily talking about material possessions here. He's not talking about an easy time. He's talking about life and life abundant and rich and full. Life that does not end. The things that are essential for us, for our existence as people, as children of God. Who shall bring any charge against God? Against God's elect. It is God who justifies. And yet, we know that there are those who bring charges against God's elect, don't we? That's just a a statement of of the way life is. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. We got the high priest standing there in the presence of God. And at his right hand is the accuser. Satan is standing there to accuse him in the presence of God. And so even in the presence of God, here's the high priest, man chosen, anointed, called by God. And there's a Satan at the right hand accusing him in the presence of God. God rebukes him. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He's the one who accuses us. You think about the challenges in the book of Job. You think about Daniel in chapter 6 verse 24. The Persian leaders maliciously accused Daniel Um, They accused him of his relationship with God because he was praying to God three times a day and he did this uh, unashamedly. And so they, because of their envy, they said we need to accuse him because he was getting to be once again elevated above them. They were envious, they were jealous, they wanted their name to be exalted and not Daniel's. And so they said we're going to have to accuse him. They looked in his life, they couldn't find anything because he was a good man. They looked in his the way he did his job, and they couldn't find anything because he was a faithful steward of what God had entrusted to him, an administrator of a pagan country. And he did his job well to the glory of God. So they said, if we're going to accuse him, it's going to have to be something in his relationship with God. And so they deceived the, the ruler to making a law that was just, it was a, a crazy law. But according to the Medes and Persians, once the emperor makes the law, even he cannot change it. He is bound by that law. And so they used this to try to entrap Daniel, to accuse him. And God delivered him. Think about Jesus as he stands before the high priest and he's accused by the chief priest and the elders. Or Paul because of his hope in the promise of God accused by the Jews in Acts 26. And we could go on and on. And so there's uh, these accusations going on. And Paul is answering that here in Romans 8. Who can bring any charge against us? God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will deliver us from the hand of the accusers. It doesn't mean that uh, we're always going to be victorious in the law courts. It doesn't mean that our lives will not be forfeit on occasion. So I think about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
took a, a, a strong stand as leaders and they were going to be thrown into a burning fiery furnace heated so hot it killed the soldiers that threw them in and their response to Nebuchadnezzar was very respectful O king live forever the God who we serve is able to deliver us from those flames but if he does not we will not serve you we will serve him and him alone now God delivered Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the flames there were others that got burned up just as righteous just as holy just as faithful in the book of Acts you remember that uh, they were getting ready to execute Peter and God sent the angels and he, he released the chains opened the doors and set Peter free uh, just a, a few days before that they had killed James the brother of John killed him why did God allow James to be executed but he delivered Peter I don't know that's God's business but we know that that's what happened according to the book of Acts we know that um, many times God spared Paul's life but at the end of the day he was executed uh, by the Roman government and so we have these uh, both ands and Paul writing to the Roman church is addressing these things God sent his son and died on the cross to answer the accusers we don't have to worry about the the accusations of the enemy uh, we fight a spiritual warfare but the victory has already been won so Paul moves on in Acts 8 verse 33 who shall bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies and so that's what we've been talking about here these accusations that have been leveled against God's people and he says uh, God is the one who's justified us through the blood of Christ he's paid the penalty he's paid the price the accusations do not have any value or power because the punishment the condemnation that that accusation brings has already been satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us and so we go back to chapter 8 verse 1 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so who is he that's going to condemn Jesus died on the cross rose again to let us know our sins have been forgiven and he's at the right hand of the father praying and interceding for us Jesus is praying for each one of us this morning at the father's right hand earlier in verse 26 he tells us likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so he said it twice here. Um, First of all, Jesus is praying for us, interceding for us. He said it twice here in 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. And more than that, he's told us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God, which means God is for us. And so the question comes, if God is for us, who can stand against us? If we are walking in the Lord, we don't have to worry about accusations or condemnation. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 50, about Christ, the Messiah, who's going to be the suffering servant. And he says, he who vindicates me is near. Therefore, he could give his back to the, to the beating, his head to the spitting and the pulling out the, the hair. He could do that because he doesn't have to justify himself. God is his vindication. God vindicated his son through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the empty tomb, through the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So if we know who we are in the Lord, we don't have to prove anything to anybody. We're not judged by other people's expectations. We're judged by our relationship with God. He's not going to ask us, what did so-and-so think of you? He's not going to ask you that. Do you know Jesus? And he tells us in here, in, in Corinthians, that those who love God are known by God. That's all we need. Those who love God are known by Him. So God is for us. Holy Spirit is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. And then comes the next big question. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The kids have it right. The children have it right. Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be fearful. Um, I don't have to be insecure. I don't have to remain in confusion and doubt if I know that Jesus loves me. In a a really good, healthy family with the little children, um, no matter what the problem is, if mom and dad are near, they don't worry about it at all. They don't fear. They're not in confusion. Uh, there's no doubts. If I can grab a hold of my dad's hand or, or grab a hold of my mom, uh, it's okay. Because they are that child's security. And for us, Jesus is our security. Uh, we may not understand. Uh, we not be, may not be able to understand. It doesn't matter. We don't have to understand. Except, Jesus loves me. If we understand that, then we're going to be all right. So Paul says, okay, uh, let's think about it. What kinds of things usually separate us? Well, let's see. Tribulation. And Paul is going through tribulation. He's not spared from the tribulation. He is living it. He's been beaten, what, four or five times He's with uh, whips. He's been stoned, left for dead. He's been beaten with rods. He's been thrown in prison. He's been run out of many towns. 
He's going through tribulation. He's going to give his life, be executed by the Roman government. Um, he says, no, uh, that can't separate me from God's love. What about distress, uh, anxiety and fears, you know, about distress? Or maybe take the diss off, it's just stress. Well, he says, no, no, that can't separate me from the love. What about persecution? People say ugly things and do bad things and they accuse me falsely or maybe they have a reason for it and, and they make it worse than it really was. So persecution can't separate us from the love of God. Uh, famine, if we don't have enough. And there are good Christian people who die in famine. It's only in this country that we think that doesn't happen. And there are good Christian people in this country who die of famine. And we are deceiving ourselves if we think it does not happen. But it cannot separate them from the love of Christ. What about nakedness? I don't have what I need in order to live a healthy, comfortable life here. I don't have the shelter. I don't have, have the, enough clothing. Paul says that sometimes he didn't have enough clothes and he would be cold and he would, or he would be hot or he would be, you know, he spent uh, three times, he was shipwrecked. He's, he's out there in the ocean, you know. That's not a comfortable place to be, hanging on to a chunk of wood or whatever he could find to keep himself afloat. Um, but it couldn't separate him from the love of Christ. Danger, um, and as you read through the list of Paul's experiences, and he is just one guy. There were many other apostles and disciples, many other Christian believers who were consistently walking with the Lord in a very close relationship, and they were in danger. Um, our friends on the mission field right now, they are in danger. Uh, there have been death threats on many of them, and some of them are in prison. And some of them are on trial for their life in different places. You don't hear about it a lot. But it's going on now, today. But that can't separate them from the love of Christ. Have you read Bonhoeffer's biography in prison? Um, many of the great revelations that he understood came to him during this time of danger. Or sword. You know, um, I don't think it was a coincidence that... Um, just before the Civil War, we had the Great Awakening. I mean, just before the War of Independence, we had the Great Awakening. Just before the Civil War, or during the Civil War, there was a tremendous revival breaking out in the army camps of the troops on both sides. Uh, people coming to the Lord, people giving their life. Next day, they get up and go in battle, and they're killed, dead. Killed, dead. <laughs> um, but it does not negate what had happened around the campfire the night before. And that cannot separate them from the love of God. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I think Paul's talking about him and the other leaders that are, are paying the price in order to get the gospel out. But it applies to others as well. So, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he asks, shall all of these things? Verse 27, he gives you the answer. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. Not just victorious. More than that. Paul says we're seated on the right hand with the Lord in the heavenlies. For I am sure that neither death 
nor life. Sometimes life is a bigger threat to us than death is. You know, when people die, they're in the presence of the Lord and their tasks, their temptations, their journey is finished. They are home safe. It's those of us who are left that struggle. It's us that struggle. Paul is saying that death cannot separate us from the love of God, neither can life. Life in all of its hardship, with all of its injustice, with all of its cruelty and pain is a glorious thing. It's a gift from God. It's meant to be filled with joy and beauty and wonder and praise. And it is as we walk with Him day by day. And it balances out and is greater than the difficulties that we face. So death can't separate us. Life can't separate us. Angels can't separate us. Even if Satan himself were standing there accusing us like he was with Joshua there in the book of Zechariah, the Lord takes care of that. He's already done that. He's, he's defeated him. And he cannot separate Joshua or any one of us from the love of God. Nor rulers. Government can't touch that. No matter what government it is. No matter how oppressive it is. Nor things present. Nor things to come. Uh, we don't have to fear what today brings or what tomorrow brings either. We go through, through that one step at a time. Powers can't. The powers behind the powers, the, the ruling authority, the spiritual wickedness in high places. Um, the angels who fight on our behalf and we never know about it. Uh, none of those things can separate us from God. Not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. You know, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they would go to understand the height and the depth, the breadth, the breadth uh, of the love of God in Christ Jesus that he gives to you and to me, surrounding us, enfolding us, keeping us, protecting us, providing for us in his embrace. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So back to verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He answers that question. No one, no thing can stand before us because of the love of God. So the, the whole point is, if God is for us, we don't have to fear whatever the consequences and whatever the outcome. So the question is, do you know the love of God in Christ Jesus? Have you experienced it in your heart and in your life? Doesn't mean your problems will disappear. It means you have a resource with which you can face them and walk through them. Death being one of the problems that we all face. So the book of Hebrews tells us that God sent Jesus to taste death for every man that he might free those who all their life had been in bondage to fear of death. Because it's appointed unto man wants to die. But the sting of death is sin and God in His grace, His love through Jesus Christ has dealt with that sting. He's taken away the fear. Uh, so if we live, we live unto the Lord. 
if we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord, surely the good news, the best news, is that you are for us. And that in your love and grace, you sent your Son who willingly came that through his obedience and through the sacrifice of his life, we might be freed from our sins and fears and doubts. And as we look to you, we can have the certainty, know the assurance, the peace of your spirit speaking to us, calling out from within us, Abba, Father, we are your children. Those who love the Lord are known by you. Lord, help us to begin to understand in ways that we can receive what it means to be known by name and loved by you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation this year, 1517. And God chose an unlikely candidate to be the one who finally made that Reformation beginning to be a success. Everybody else before that had died, burned at the stake or killed by, by the church in the name of God. But he chose a man, Martin Luther, um, a German miner's son, um, whose father wanted him to be a lawyer, and he was a great disappointment to his father. Um, he got struck by lightning one day, scared him to death, and he was afraid to die. He had a great fear of death, because in those days they talked a lot about the, the, uh, the perils of hell, which were very real and biblical thing to say, but it just scared everybody to death. And uh, Luther, Martin Luther, was one of those guys, and he was scared to death. So he tried to earn his way into the kingdom of God. He went on long, fast, permanently damaged his health for the rest of his life. He had issues because of the strong, uh, lengthy, fast rigors that he put himself through. They would go to confession, and these guys would confess things, and Luther, would he would confess every little attitude, every little thought, every little emotion that he felt. He would go on for hours and hours, and finally his confessor looked at him and said, I wish you'd go out and sin so that you'd have something worth listening to, you know? But Luther was so concerned about that, and he struggled with this for years and years, and he got educated, and he was a university professor, and um, one day, Stalpitz, one of his advisors, looked at him and he said, you know what the problem is? He says, the problem is, God's not angry with you. The problem is, you're angry with God. And it made a difference in Luther's life. Uh, as you read through the Psalms, as you read through the prophets, sometimes, as they're talking to God, they're talking to God in anger because they know Him well enough. They can be themselves. They can be honest with God and honest with themselves. And they're angry. And they're asking God about this stuff. And um, as you read through the, the people that we look up to as spiritual uh, leaders throughout history, you find this often takes place in their lives. So... We know about that, and we can feel free to express those things, but have you ever thought about uh, needing to forgive God? 
God, you didn't do it the way I wanted and when I asked you to do it. And I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm upset about that. Uh, so we can allow that to come between us and God like, like Luther was doing. He was allowing his own experience or lack of it um, when things didn't happen the way he wanted it to. He was angry with God and he needed to come to the place where he forgave God for hurting his feelings. Forgave God, God I forgive you for not answering my prayer the way I, I wanted you to. My expectations. God I forgive you and release the bitterness because it didn't work out the way that I had hoped or the way that I would wanted. Sometimes we need to do that. Now God's not at fault. But until we let go with forgiveness, that bitterness and that anger will destroy us. It will be a barrier, a wall between us and God. That's what Luther, in his experience, found. This, his, his expectations of what God was doing and how he was doing it, uh, it didn't fit. And he was mad about it. Jesus understands that. One of the reasons they crucified Jesus is that he didn't come in the way that they expected or wanted him to come. How dare God work in this way? How are you supposed to work in this way? They got scriptures to back it up. King coming, he's the king, he's the mighty God. Here he is, this peasant out of Nazareth from all places. They didn't know. And they were mad. And they were threatened. And they were envious and jealous. And so they said, this guy's got to go. And so they nailed him to the cross. So God is able to take all of our bitterness and angerness. Even our bitterness against him. That's why Jesus is dying on the cross. And when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not just talking about Roman centurions. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. God is God, not me. And when I finally begin to realize that, oh, what a release. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be successful. I don't have to be a failure. I don't have to be wrong. I can be what God created me to be, His child, walking with Him, saying, Lord, what do you want me to do today? It's not what I want to do. Lord, how do you want me to spend my money? It's not what I want. Huh? And doesn't mean you have to give it all away. God expects us to enjoy life. That's why he gave us those blessings. But the point is, we don't make that an end in itself. We look to him. And so God takes all of our unfulfilled dreams, our unfulfilled expectations, our shattered hopes, and he brings them all and he dies on the cross and he says, I have something so much better planned for you. It's not even worth comparing. So do you believe it? Will we receive it is the question. Jesus didn't have any disillusions about the men that were in the upper room that night, did he? He knew this one's going to betray me. This one's going to deny me three times. Every one of these who's made promises and commitments, they're all going to run away. Uh, because they're, they're human people, frail and weak. 
They have great hopes and great longings and great commitments. But because it's still about me, they're going to fail. And so Jesus gives us an opportunity to shift from me to him. And it sets us free. Sets us free. Gives us hope. Gives us peace. We can trust him. And so he comes um, on the night that he was betrayed. After supper, he took the bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Each of you eat from this. This is my body. It's broken for you. All your broken dreams and hopes and expectations, all your shattered um, desires for the, for the future, it's broken here in my body. I've taken it all and it's broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. After he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant, a new relationship offered to you in Christ Jesus. It's the blood of the Lord. It's for the forgiveness of sin. It's for cleansing. It's for healing. It's for wholeness. And he invites us to participate. Um, and so as we come this morning, again, there'll be people here to, to pray with you if you want someone to pray with you about any, anything. But the main thing is that as we come into the presence of the Lord, we've been here this morning. He's been with us because he promised he would be. And as we come to celebrate what Christ has done for us through his broken body and his shed blood, we know it's for sin, for our sin. We know it's for hope. We know it's a promise for the future. And so when, he, when uh, God speaks, 23rd Psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? God is with me. He never talked about coming out the other side of the valley. He said, I'm there with you in the valley. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And the last great enemy to be destroyed is death, isn't it? And the table that he sheds before us is the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in the presence of death, he raises us up and we sit in his presence and we eat at his table. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me. Hebrew means that it will run, it will chase after you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if you're going through a rough time, you know the presence of the Lord is with you, look behind because mercy and goodness are chasing you, trying to catch up with you. They're looking for you. It's there if you will receive it. So will those who are serving communion please come forward?